passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Go ahead and jump into God's Word this morning. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along. Philippians chapter 2. Um, last, I guess not last week, but two weeks ago, we were going through um, Philippians 2, 1 through 4, which is this charge from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi on uh, how to pursue church unity, how to be a, a united church, a people um, that worship alongside one another. And uh, apparently the church in Philippi was beginning to show cracks in their unity. There were was, there was some fractures, some disagreements that were becoming a little heated. Um, and in fact, Paul later in Philippians 4 actually mentions that, uh, mentions two women, um, Euodia and Syntyche, and, and says, hey, let's work together, agree together in the Lord so that way we can serve God together together. Uh, in, in, a, in a unified way. And this charge, this charge to church unity, is, is also one that's that is extremely relevant for us today as well, isn't it? I, uh, I was talking this past week with a couple different pastors, and uh, one of them from here in, uh, in Iowa actually shared with me that there has been no, um, no topic that has been more contentious in his decades of ministry than whether or not to require people to wear masks during a service. It's, a, it's an issue of contention, one that people can divide upon. Another uh, pastor shared with me th- this past week that uh, there's, there's little more contentious that he has found than trying to navigate all of these racial tensions that we are experiencing right now here in the United States. It, it is so easy for us to find things to divide, a, 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 to, to divide and separate on and of course, if you forgot, we have an election coming up later this year. So we've got another thing that's coming up that might be an area of division. Paul's words to the church in Philippi are extremely relevant for us this morning. They're extremely relevant for the church back then. In the, in the, threat, in the face of the threat of division, Paul writes these words, Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here we see that Paul says that the key to church unity is to have the same mindset, to cultivate in within us this this same core commitment And that is one to humility. As a church, to be committed to the good of others, even if that comes at great cost to ourselves. And instead of seeking our own agenda, no matter what the collateral damage may be, that we are to be people that should go out of our way in order to pursue the good of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And this morning, this passage is relevant. Um, Paul picks up on this and, and, and is his train of thought isn't done here. He's got more to say on this topic. It's Philippians 2, 5 through 11, one of the most well-known passages in the entire Bible, and for good reason. Paul is, is talking about the significance of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and he gives us what is sometimes called a hymn. And, and I understand why people call it a hymn, because it, it looks like one. It, it is very poetic in nature, but this hymn serves a very definitive purpose for the church. Paul uses this uh, song, this hymn, 
for a specific purpose, and that is to show the church the specific heart posture that we as Christians must have. Notice how he starts as he introing into this hymn in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here we see that Paul, he takes up or he gives this imperative about taking up the mindset of Christ. And, and we should listen to Paul's words because they're just as relevant for us today. If we want to avoid fractures in the church, if we want to avoid divisions in the church, and, and we've seen, or you're probably aware of, of churches across the nation, throughout the ages, that have, have divided. Paul tells us that the most important thing that we can do is to cultivate the same mind that Christ Jesus has. And before we jump into this text, can I just, just say how, how incredible it is that God has, in his word, he's not just given us the story of salvation, not just told us about what he has done so that we can be saved, but he also saw fit to give us his attitude to show us what he was thinking as he was going to the cross, as he was coming to earth in the Christmas story, that God doesn't just give us the story, but he also says, if you want to know, this was my heart posture. This is my attitude throughout all of these things. It's just absolutely incredible. Incredible. What was that heart posture? Well, that's what we see in this text, what we see in, the, um, in verses 6 through 11. And so even though our time this morning is going to be brief, I, I want to just um, right here at the very beginning just share what the focus of this passage is. And it's simply this, to be like Jesus is to deny self in the service of others. To be like Jesus, if we want to be like Jesus, then we have to deny ourselves so that we can serve others. That's the, the mindset that we see from Jesus here in these pages. It drips from every single verse. This attitude that says, I'm not all about preserving my own rights, but instead, Jesus says, I'm going to use my position, who I am, as a way to serve and save the lost. So as we look at this passage, you'll notice that it actually comes really in two, moment, uh, two movements. It's, first, there's this movement downward, and then after that, there's this movement upward. In fact, um, that's exactly what this passage is about. It, it starts with Jesus in his exalted state, and then it, he, he descends, or we call it Jesus' humiliation. He is humiliated to the, to the key moments. The lowest point of Jesus' life is the cross. But it doesn't stop there. It actually goes back, and we see Jesus in verses 9 through 11 in his exalted state at the end of this passage. So let's go ahead and pray before we jump in, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into this text. So pray with me, please. Father, as we approach your word, we first ask for your presence to be with us. I ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that you would ignite within each and every one of us a desire to know you more, uh, to become more and more like you. We thank you that your spirit is present with us and dwells us no matter where we are. And whether we're watching at home or we're gathering here in person, we just say thank you. We ask that you would speak to us, teach us, and point us to you. Bless this time in your word this morning, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and jump into our text, starting in verse 6. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Text starts, verses 6 through 8, with the story of Jesus' self-denial. In those three verses, 6, 7, and 8, we actually see four examples of Christ's self-denial. Let's go ahead and look at each of them in turn. First in verse 6, we see this. Who, though he was in the form, or morphe, so hold on to that word, the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here in this first verse, we see the very definition of self-denial by what Jesus does not do. Instead of focusing on what Jesus does do, the passage actually starts with what Jesus does not do. Don't get caught up in this, this uh, what is exactly does it mean when it says the form of God? Does that mean that Jesus was, was appearing to be God, but he actually wasn't really God? The NIV, I think, does a really good job of communicating what this word morphe means, what it means that Jesus was in the form of God. Philippians 2, verse 6, according to the NIV, says this, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Here what we see is that this word morphe really just refers to what we are in our very nature. Jesus doesn't just appear to be God, but is actually something different. But as we see in the Nicene Creed, this creed that's been a part of the church for millennia, he is very God of very God. And a whole slew of sermons could be written about these verses, about what is it exactly does it mean? What are the implications of this verse for who Jesus is and a right understanding of Jesus? But don't miss Paul's main point. Here he's talking about Jesus. He says that Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's eternally coexisting with, the, with God the Father and God the Spirit. And he's, he's living in this perfect communion with the Trinity. And as a person of the triune God, Jesus is the creator of all things. In fact, Colossians chapter 1 tells us that nothing has been made without Jesus. He's the, he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. John chapter 1 says the exact same thing. Jesus is the creator of all things, and as the creator, he's also the Lord, the sovereign over all things. So let me ask you a question. If Jesus is the creator, and if Jesus is the sovereign Lord of everything, what rights does Jesus have? Rights. This language, very, very modern term, this idea of rights is very important to us. We have human rights advocates fighting against slavery across the world, fighting against oppression across the globe. The U.S. Constitution gives us certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. These things are, by definition, according to the Constitution, things that each and every one of us must or is entitled to as a human being. The, the very definition of, of a right is one of the most fundamental parts of modern civilization, that everyone deserves something. Not everything, but every single person is, is deserving of, of certain things. Now, what about Jesus? After all, Jesus is not merely human. He is human, but he's also fully God. What are, what are Jesus' rights? If he is a sovereign Lord over all 
creation. Well, let's go ahead and, and look at our text. If Jesus is, is co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit, and, and as such, if he's Lord of the entire universe, what is he entitled to? Well, pretty much anything and everything, right? That's the very basic definition of, of who Jesus is and what it means to be God, is that you are the Lord, and, and as such, you are able to have anything and everything you want. I love the way that um, theologian Vernon McGee, he, he puts this a little tongue-in-cheek. He says it this way. This is God's universe, and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. And that really describes what is, is the, at the heart here, is that because it is his universe, God is the one who gets to say what goes and what doesn't go. When you are the Lord of the universe, you are the one who is in charge. That's your right. And as the Lord of the universe... Others exist to serve you. That is your right. And Jesus is in this exalted position, and, and he could have used that exalted position over all of the universe to his own advantage. And no one would have batted an eye, or they shouldn't have batted an eye at least, because that is his right. And yet here's the absolutely astounding thing about verse 6. In verse 6, we see that Jesus, the God of the universe, the one who has every right to anything and everything. More entitlement than, than you and I could, could ever even fathom. He does something completely different than you and me. You and me, we're always pursuing, or not always, but oftentimes our, our default nature is, is to pursue and make sure that we get what is ours. But not with Jesus. Even though the rights and the privileges of Godhood or his, he did not cling to them for his own advantage. I love the language Paul uses here, this word picture he gives. He says that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. I love that word grasp because it reminds me, and maybe this is just very relevant right now because of the stage of life my kids are in, but it reminds me of a toddler who refuses to share a toy. Has it, refuses to let go because it is mine. It reminds me of a, of a politician who, who stays in office far longer than they should uh, to the detriment of others. They're, they're, they're ineffective and yet they hold on for as long as they can because this is mine. And Jesus could have done that, but he chose not to. His, his chief concern wasn't his own well-being, it, it was instead the benefit of others. Though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7. But instead he emptied himself by taking the form, morphe, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. First we see Jesus' self-denial and what he did not do. Now we see Jesus' self-denial and what he does. And, and that's in, first, the incarnation, according to these uh, words here in verse 7. The incarnation is the story of the first Christmas when God the Son actually descends into earth. He comes in the flesh, incarnate, so that he can dwell among humanity. And here we have this beautiful picture of the mindset of Jesus. Jesus is not the one who grasps after things, after his own good, but instead he gives himself freely for the good of others. And that's an encouraging thought, isn't it? That we have a God who is not a grasper, but instead is a giver and is actually one who gives freely of himself for the good of others. 
And we might say, well, what exactly does this giving look like? Well, well Paul tells us that, that Jesus emptied himself. And that doesn't mean he ceased to be God. He emptied himself of God. No, it means that he gave up his rights and, and his status as the person uh, uh, of, as a person of the Trinity. Instead, he takes on flesh. Again, notice this word, morphe. He doesn't just appear in the flesh, but he actually takes on flesh. And I love the way that the author of Hebrews puts it, describing the significance of this moment. Hebrews chapter 2 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, what, what the author is describing here is that in the incarnation, when, when God, the, the Son, becomes flesh, Jesus chooses to associate with us, to associate with, with re- rebellious, wicked, condemned humanity. He gives up his rights so that he might save some of us. Our God gives lavishly. He gives himself. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The third and fourth example of self-denial in this passage actually found both in this verse. Let's go ahead and look at them together. In this verse, first we see Jesus' self-denial through obedience, and then we also see Jesus' self-denial at the cross. Verse 8, Paul emphasizes the obedience of Jesus throughout his entire life, and that culminates in the cross. There's never a moment in Jesus' life where his father tells him to do one thing, and he says, no, I'm going to go ahead and do the other, even though he knows that that road is leading to the cross. There's never a time in Jesus' life where he isn't perfectly serving others, perfectly caring for others, perfectly teaching others. There's never a moment where he exalts himself over his actual position. Jesus' entire life is an act of obedience and an act of self-denial. And that culminates at the cross. The author of life put to death on a tree. No other moment in history is greater. No other moment in history is more awful either. Today, when we hear the word cross, the object of the cross, it's culturally acceptable. There's a cross hanging right above me. It's associated with the church. It has been for millennia, honestly. But in that first century context, the the cross was even shameful to talk about, to think about. It was so despicable. Such such scorn was leveled at the the cross that that this is the moment of greatest self-denial in Jesus' life. Not just because he gives himself, but because he dies a shameful death. The Roman orator uh, Cicero, he he describes the the significance of the cross from a Roman perspective in this way. Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. So Cicero, writing millennia ago, says that it is wrong not only to talk about the cross. It's, it's even wrong to think about the cross because it's so shameful, so disgusting, and at no other place can we find Jesus's self-denial to be greater 
than here at the cross. It's, it's here at the, the lowest moment of Jesus' life that we also see the greatest heights of his love. And thankfully, this story doesn't end here. The text doesn't end there. It goes from the lowest humiliation, Jesus on the cross, to exaltation, again, to vindication from God the Father. That's what verses 9 through 11 are all about. It says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice how this passage begins. Verse 9 begins with this word, therefore. It ties this section back to what took place before, verses 6 through 8. Here we see how God, the Father, responds to Jesus' obedience, how Jesus' self-denial, how God the Father views it. He says, you know what, I'm not going to leave you in this place of of humiliation, of death on the cross, but instead I'm actually going to take you and I'm going to exalt you. You're going to be vindicated. I'm going to put you in the highest place. And notice that there's two ways that the the Father vindicates him. Verse 9 tells us both. First, he exalts Jesus above all. And then second, he gives Jesus the name above every other name. Now the question is, what is that name? And the answer is given to us in verse 11. Verse 11, it tells us the confession that all of creation will one day make. Not only that every knee will bow, but also that every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. This word Lord is significant because of its, uh, its significance to the Jewish people. A little bit of a history lesson here. Um, the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, and there was a special name for God, Yahweh, that the people of Israel saw as their covenant relationship with God. So God would refer to himself as Yahweh to the people of Israel because this is a special relationship between Israel and God. Now, the, the Old Testament was written about a... You know, over the course of, of centuries, a uh, long time before Jesus was born, uh, about 150 to, to 300 years before Jesus was born, the, the main language of the day was Greek. Everyone was speaking Greek. It was the, the lingua franca of that day. And so the, the people of Israel decided, you know what, the best way for us to be able to continue to read God's word, even if we don't live here in Israel, even if, if Uh, Hebrew is not our our primary language anymore, is to actually take the Bible and we're going to translate it into Greek. And so that's what they did over the course of actually 150 years. They translated the Old Testament into Greek. And when they got to this word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H is what it is in, in Hebrew, they had a decision to make. How are we going to translate the word Yahweh? Over 6,000 different times it's used in the the Greek Old Testament, this word Lord. And just like what we see in our English translations, if you look, uh, if you flip through your Old Testament, you'll see that there are some times where it says Lord, L-O-R-D, with the the O-R-D are not in capital letters. And sometimes it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that is a reference to Yahweh. Well, for the the Jews who translated the Old Testament into Greek, they decided that they were going to use this word kurios to translate Yahweh. So, 
6,000 different uses in the Old Testament of kurios, and the vast majority of them are referring to Yahweh. Now jump into the New Testament. In the first century, Paul is writing to a, a group of, of people who have the Hebrew Scriptures. And there was this default understanding, not just when you say Lord, that you're thinking of, of like a master, but when you say kurios, this Greek word for Lord, most of the time, if you are in the context of, of the Judeo-Christian religion, then you are referring to Yahweh himself. And so what is taking place here is this idea that when Jesus is given the name above every other name and is, is Lord, there's this, this moment of just absolute awe because Paul is saying that Jesus is Yahweh. The name above every other names. The God who saved people in the Old Testament, the, God who, the covenant God for Israel in the Old Testament, it all is pointing to Jesus here in this moment. That Jesus is God himself. And this truth that the risen, exalted Jesus is God himself, it's one day going to be recognized by all of creation as we saw, or as, it, as we see in verses 10 and 11, there's no being in heaven. There's no human or, or creator, uh, creature here on earth, no fallen angel, no, no evil spirit underneath the earth that will not recognize this truth, that, that Jesus is God. But not just that Jesus is God, but that Jesus is the God who saves his people. And that's the confession that all of creation will one day make. And the question, of course, is, the most important question is, will we make it now, willingly, or will we make it then, begrudgingly? That's the concern of this text. You see, as you look at this passage, it really is focused on two different things. It, um, and, and this is how we can apply this passage to ourselves and our own lives this, this passage is concerned with both the source of our justification and the charge of our sanctification. Let me, let me unpack that. This is, this is a passage that is concerned with the source of our justification, what makes us right with God, and also the charge of our sanctification, how we become more and more like Jesus. First, our justification. Here in this hymn, we actually just, we see our justification, don't we? Christ the Lord, the very God of very God, the second person of the Trinity, he leaves heaven so that he might fully pay the penalty for our sins. And his entire life is one of obedience to his Father's plan, and that culminates with the cross. But from that place of the lowest point of his life, he is exalted to the highest place, and, and all of creation will one day confess his lordship. And that's the beauty of this passage, is the beauty of salvation. I, I read these words, I'm, I'm, I'm just blown away by the selfless nature of our God. A, a connection um, that a number of people make in this passage is um, between Adam and Jesus. And, and Paul oftentimes uses uh, this, this imagery of Adam, and how does Adam compare to Jesus? And we see in Romans chapter 5, he calls Adam the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam because where Adam from Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 through 3, brings death, Jesus brings life. 
Now, I want you to consider Genesis 1 through 3, the story of the fall, when, when all of creation is broken and what goes wrong. What is Adam doing? He's trying to seek after what is not his. To use the language of Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Adam, though he was in nature human, sought after equality with God. He grasped after it. He chased after it. And all of humanity has been following in that same path ever since. We've been longing for something that is not ours. We've been grasping after it, and yet we get to Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who is able to, to pursue equality with God. And we wouldn't have been, had to bat an eye because that was his right. And yet he gives himself for us. Jesus does not grasp. Jesus gives. And so meditate on this passage. Memorize it. Take time to store it up in your heart so you can remember the source of our justification, what God has done for us, and not just what God has done, but also the heart behind it. One of the things that we see in this text is, is that Paul is actually, as he's writing this, he, he's got a, a passage from Isaiah in the back of his mind, Isaiah chapter 45. is just sitting at the back of his mind as he's writing this. Consider these words from Isaiah. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Here's the message of this passage, that salvation is found in Jesus. It's found at the cross. But this passage doesn't just reveal our justification, how we become right with God. It also reveals our sanctification, how God, through his Spirit, is at work in our hearts and, and making us more and more like Jesus. We began our time this morning talking about how uh, the important part of this passage is this idea of unity in the church. How do we become unified in the church? It's a, it's a good, important thing, obviously, because we see it in Scripture. But I love the way that Doug Moo, he's a, he's a theologian, he puts that, that charge to, to church unity and humility in perspective. He puts it this way, for believers, humility is not just a pragmatic strategy for a united congregation. It is conformity to the mindset of Christ Jesus. We don't want to just be pragmatists. We don't just want to be those who use certain actions to reach a certain end. We want to become more and more like Jesus. That's our charge, to be more like Jesus. And here, more than any other passage, we're really given insight into what exactly that looks like, how to become more and more like Christ. Not just to act like him, but also to begin to think like him. Not to grasp after things, but instead to give ourselves. To not cling to our rights, but instead willingly give them up. To be a people who use whatever power and whatever prestige, whatever privilege we may have, so that we can serve others. To be 
like Jesus is to deny self so that we can serve others. Years ago, I uh, remember hearing a, a world-renowned Christian, um, you, I guess I shouldn't say world-renowned, you probably don't know his name, but um, you've been influenced by his ministry. And he was being interviewed, and, and near the end of his, his life, um, or excuse me, near, as he was getting close to retirement, he was being interviewed about how he had been faithfully serving in, in, over decades and what people could learn from that. And I remember, I, don't, I guess I don't remember much about the interview, but I remember one thing, one question that was asked of him. And it went something like this. The interviewer said, you've had a wildly successful ministry. You've been used uh, by God. You've, you've, you've pastored a church for, for decades. You've mentored hundreds of young pastors. You've written dozens of books. You've, you've taught all over the globe. Tell me, how do you remain humble? And his response, he was almost like offended by that question because his response was simply this, how could I possibly be proud while standing next to the cross? How could I possibly be proud standing next to the cross? How could I possibly grasp after things, fight for my rights, do whatever I can to make sure that I don't budge an inch? next to the cross where God himself gave himself freely for us. How could I possibly be someone who is full of myself, is only concerned with myself, when I follow a crucified king who denied himself to the fullest? That's the source of our, or that's the charge of our sanctification, to become like Jesus. And we become like Jesus by denying ourselves so that we can serve others. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to become more and more like your Son. We ask that you would forgive us our pride, that you would forgive us for being people who tend to grasp rather than give. Be merciful to us, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Christ Jesus for us as we seek to become increasingly like him. But we say not only thank you for his example, but also we say thank you for what he has done for us so that we could become a part of your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.